Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates stories, the art of telling, and the journey of listening. With narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith friends. Episode 21. Our featured story is from author Brian Malloy's new novel, After Francesco. You're going to hear his award-winning, talented narrator, Michael Crouch, read in just a few minutes. But first, Brian tells you how his emotional ride of a story is anchored in personal experiences. In his calm and even voice, he also shares what he was feeling when he wrote the author's note during the pandemic, a very different pandemic than the one he wrote about in the book. That is where we begin. I just wanted to start off by thanking you for writing it. I think it's such an important story to be told and to be talked about. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I want to start with, I think... um, the response of the government at that time is one of the is one of the main energies of this book. One of the main points that should be, and it's it's hard not to compare it to COVID. I know it was it was released this year, but as you were writing it, was one of the impetuses because you could see this mass response to COVID. Well, I began the book prior to COVID. And as I was going through the final editorial process and writing my author's note, we were in lockdown quarantine. Yeah. And in the author's note at the end of the book, I couldn't help but notice, and a lot of AIDS generation gay men also noticed, the difference in response from one pandemic to the next, depending upon who is the most affected population. So I've done a couple of talks about the book and for younger people in particular, I just tell them, try to imagine COVID without Donald Trump mentioning it once during the last year of his presidency or Joe Biden mentioning it at all during the first four years of his term. Mm. And imagine that Funding for research for COVID doesn't make it through the House Committee appropriations, Mm -hmm. and we wait till the next year to take it up. Or imagine that Eddie Murphy is making jokes about old farts dying of COVID, and isn't that funny? Or Rush Limbaugh uh, doing a segment on his radio show announcing who had died of COVID and celebrating that fact. Mm. So politically, culturally, Uh, It's a very different climate today than it was back in the 1980s. We have made so much progress in terms of uh, equal protections uh, from the Supreme Court, finally, and marriage equality. And uh, so I don't want to discount the progress that has been made, but I think it is worthwhile to look at things like AIDS and look at the government response based on who is affected um, disasters. Yes, it's an interesting lens and it's an interesting comparative. 
you know, and, and to be able to hold those two things, you know, in the same light and look at exactly what you said, like not even being mentioned, being mocked, being almost victims. Like, um, I remember hearing when innocent people were being affected by AIDS. I remember that phrase and it had to do with blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it was more, um, it was getting more attention. And the idea that there was something other than an innocent victim ever, right? Right. In the grand scheme of things, there's ever been an epidemic that hasn't been moralized to some degree. And this goes beyond AIDS. Um, if you go back to the Black Death, the Catholic Church blamed it on the sin of pride. Uh, that was the cause of the spread. And um, in terms of AIDS in the 80s, a lot of attention was given to HIV-infected infants and also people who, uh, through transfusions, as you pointed out, were infected, uh, hemophiliacs. And um, Ryan White is probably was the most well-known person living with AIDS in the 1980s. And I am really very grateful um, to Ryan White's family and to Ryan White himself for the courage they displayed because uh, even though he wasn't, he was very young, he wasn't part of the gay community. um, He obviously wasn't an IV drug user. um, He wasn't a sex worker. These were the sort of three big categories that uh, were infected uh, initially during the pandemic. Uh, he didn't fall into any of those categories. He was a young hemophiliac and he got it through uh, blood products. But the family really stood up very courageously. Mm-hmm. And when I say courageously, the things that family went through in Indiana, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Uh, threats of violence, actual violence against their property, uh, gunshots, death threats, and this is the person who the media thought of as an innocent victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very public because he wanted to continue to attend public school and the school would not let him. And finally, the family had to move. Yeah. It just become intolerable. So uh, while we do have um, these two categories during the pandemic, like we tend to do during any pandemic <laughs> of the innocent victims and the uh, guilty sick um yes in the case of uh ryan white they showed extraordinary courage you know the funding bills for aids were called the ryan white acts and uh, i just um to this day uh really thank his family for the courage they displayed um so i wanted to talk to you some about the your characters there's something that you have Brian do throughout the whole book. A narrator, uh, Michael Crouch, did such a great job of this, but he says these words. He says, inhale, hold it, it will pass. Exhale, slowly. It was so effective in connecting me to the character. Uh, I wonder where that came from, where the idea for that stemmed from for you. Well, Kevin... Uh had trauma as a result of losing Francesco. And it is a foreshadowing of that trauma in terms of the circumstances of Francesco's death. 
It's also a reaction to panic. When the grief becomes unbearable, for example, at the first funeral that opens the book, or at a second celebration of life that occurs later in the book, this panic that I will never see this person again Mm. just overwhelms him and is unbearable. And when that happens, he you know, it leads to an anxiety or panic attack that he just has to be able to control in order to function. So the breathing exercises are to ground him and it helps him manage the panic when it occurs. And it's a little unpredictable. He doesn't know what the triggers are going to be, but often the trigger is at a funeral of a good friend. The grief becomes overwhelming to him just because it's been so unrelenting the number of memorial services and celebrations of life and funerals that he has attended Mm -hmm. in his 20s. You know, it's something that you would expect to happen later in life, and now it's happening during what should be his prime years. Yes. Yes, I think, um, really, you wrote it in a way that expressed how death is also not just end of life, but end of plans. He talks about what was ahead of them. So you just referenced how young he was, you know, and how at the place he was in his life with his partner to, to have that end, all the things that ended. You were really talking about um, all of those things ahead of them, what should be ahead of them that come to an end. Can you help set up that scene a little bit, what happens in that scene and, and how you wrote it? Absolutely. In this scene... Kevin is flying back to Minneapolis on orders of his New York friends to try to get his life together because he has fallen apart after the death of his partner, Francesco. So it's his second time ever flying and he's on the plane. He's in a confined space. He's alone with his thoughts and The fact that he's flying for the second time is a trigger for a memory of what his second flight was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And he and Francesco had imagined going to Europe and traveling and uh, perhaps visiting Kevin's relatives in Ireland. His mother uh, was from Ireland and just enjoying life and seeing new things and being together and being young. And these were the plans that they had made. Uh, Kevin had this vision of Francesco hitting it big with his art and having this really wonderful life. uh, And Mm -hmm. all that is gone now. So what he had anticipated or hoped for and growing old with Francesco is now gone. He's by himself and he doesn't know how to take the next steps. And uh, I thought I'd throw in a little bit of irony in the scene when the Time magazine that's handed out says, um, you know, Americans are living longer and loving it more. And it's just this contrast between his experience in his 20s and the public neglect of what this pandemic is doing to his group. So I put that in as a contrast as well, because 
people just experienced life so differently in the 1980s, depending on who they were. Yes. Um, yeah, Kevin, you know, I think about, uh, in terms of Kevin's grief, I also thought about my own mother's grief. We lost our my father very young. Um, he was only in his 40s. And uh, I was 15 when he died and it was after a very long illness. And just witnessing what she went through uh, and the support group she went to called To Live Again, which was for Catholic widows and widowers. And I wanted to put Kevin's grief in the context of here's this person you love most in the world and now they're gone. And now what do you do? Mm -hmm. You still have the majority of your life ahead of you if you're lucky, how are you going to live that life? Mm. And that's what Kevin doesn't know the answer to at this point. Yeah. Let's pause in our conversation with Brian right there and listen to our featured excerpt from the audiobook, which was written, as you just heard, with the clarity of personal experience. This is After Francesco. Written by Brian Malloy, narrated by Michael Crouch. It's my second time flying. The other time was when I spent all the money I made from my after-school job bagging groceries at Red Owl, along with the money Dad gave me after Mom died, then bought a one-way ticket to New York. It was the fall of 1979, and I couldn't afford to go to General College at the U anymore. No, scratch that. I could have taken out loans, but college really wasn't my thing. And by that time, Dad had disappeared, so it didn't matter as much if I fulfilled his dream of being the first Doyle man to go to college. I was tired of the remedial courses and the no-credit prep classes I had to take because I was a giant burnout in high school who lived for keggers. But mostly I dropped out because I wanted to get laid so bad I thought I'd lose my mind. Makes sense. They say guys peak sexually at 19. And there I was on the summit all by myself. I was terrified to get laid in Minneapolis in case somebody found out. Was not ready for that. I had always been an alpha. And once they find out you're gay, you're not an alpha. You're a joke. I'm in the smoking section because I wanted an aisle seat, and the ticket guy at the gate said that this was all that was left. The guy next to me by the window keeps lighting up. He told me he's an ex-army ranger and that the only thing in life that scares him is flying. He said he wished he was more like me. It didn't seem to bother me at all. I said it doesn't bother me because I don't give a shit if the plane lands in Minneapolis or Lake Michigan. He's not saying anything now. He just lights new cigarettes off the butts of old ones. He scowls at me every few minutes, like I've put a curse on our flight. His face tells me that if we do end up at the bottom of Lake Michigan, it will be all my fault. When he closes his eyes, he looks like he's praying. I close my own eyes and breathe in his smoke. This wasn't supposed to be my second time flying. Francesco always dreamt that we'd fly to Italy to explore his roots. His summer in Europe, he had been too busy with wine and food and men to dig into his past, and he came to regret the missed opportunity. 
From Italy, he planned for us to go on to Gomil in the Soviet Union to see where his maternal grandparents had come from. If they hadn't fled before the war, he told me, his mother probably would have died during the Nazi occupation, like so many Jews did. It made him think about how a chain of events makes us who we are today. How his grandparents leaving Russia meant that we could meet and fall in love. He imagined we could stretch out the trip, maybe even stay on a year or more, while he sold sketches to tourists on the left bank and I worked an under-the-table job as a waiter or bartender in some little Parisian cafe. I'd steal food to bring home to our candlelit squat just off the Seine. He wanted us to visit Ireland, too, since my mother was from Westport. Maybe my grandmother, or some aunts and uncles I'd never met, could put us up for a while. I tried to imagine a gay couple in County Mayo and couldn't do it. But he could. He made everything seem easy. A trip to Europe or a walk around the block. They were the same thing. He was open and unafraid of whatever may come next. Until AIDS came next. He was enough for me. In fact, he was all I had ever wanted. I told him that, and I'm glad I did. There's a lot I can reproach myself for, and one thing I'll never be able to forgive myself for. But not telling Francesco I loved him enough isn't on the list. I told him every day. So if this plane goes down, that won't be one of my regrets. I have to say that even now, even after all the time I've spent reliving our life together, I'm still not sure what I was to him. Somebody to take care of? He did want kids, and I've been told more than once that I act like one. Francesco saw me differently, though. He said deep down I had a good heart. I just needed to make it beat loud enough so other people could hear it, the way he could. He was kind. I loved that about him, his kindness. Even when it would occasionally piss me off. Like when he would give his last dollar to a bum on the street. But then AIDS took his kindness away from him, along with everything else that made him who he was. He's buried at Holy Sepulchre in Philly. I rode with his parents in the limo. His brothers and their wives and kids followed in their own cars. His parents are good people. They tried for his sake. The driver made some comment about how you can tell the Irish section from the Italian section because your Italians love their mausoleums. As we drove away from Francesco's plot, I felt myself suffocating. It was the worst kind of betrayal to leave him there all by himself, locked tight in a box. I screamed at the driver to turn around, go back, because my Francesco was alone and scared and couldn't breathe, and I could see him claustrophobic and struggling. Francesco's mother gave me one of her volumes. I cough from the smoke and a stewardess offers me a new Time magazine. On the cover is an old man and woman in sweatsuits, beaming. And now for the fun years. Americans are living longer and enjoying it more. The stewardess comes back, asks me if I want to switch to non-smoking, 
since she hasn't noticed me light up. She has an aisle seat set aside for me if I want it. When I get situated, she whispers so the other passengers won't hear, Would you like a beer or some wine? I consider it. She repeats herself, thinking I hadn't heard. I tell her, Just a pop, please. She pats my head, Coming right up. The older woman in this window seat is reading a thick paperback and not talking to me, which is how I like it. We don't fall into the lake. We land, and the chain-smoking ex-army ranger looks like he's gloating as we pass through the jetway, like he prayed us back down to earth safely. I make my way out of the gate, still reeking of his Barclays. You mentioned that they were going to maybe visit his family in Ireland, and I know that you personally have uh, Irish roots, Irish connections, and you've written a character in the book, Aunt Nora, who really, you know, I want people to know that there is there's lightness and humor, uh, sometimes irreverent humor, but there is a, um, you write, especially I think the interactions with this character and Kevin in a very loving way, uh, a very understanding way, even though they come from very different places and different backgrounds, I guess. Uh, is she modeled after someone? I get this question mostly from my own family. (laughs) (laughs) They all have their own ideas about who the inspiration for Aunt Nora is. (laughs) I would say she is a uh, composite character of many very strong, stubborn Irish women that I have Mm. known who are proudly and fiercely Catholic. And in depicting her character i just wanted to focus on how strong she is how she's able to handle whatever life throws her way how straightforward she is in her advice to kevin or her admonishments to kevin but also how caring she is yes that family is family and it doesn't matter if you're gay it doesn't matter if your partner died of aids family's family and you stick with your family in writing after francesca as you pointed out there's humor and there's jokes throughout the work and my goal is to write a piece that had emotional range and when i teach creative writing i tell writers that you know when tragedy strikes i'm more likely to feel it if i've also laughed with those characters and life is this continuum of you know we have our high points our low points we have our joys we have our sorrows and i would like to see that reflected more in contemporary literary fiction often it is one note which is sad Mm. and i wanted to give readers more of a emotional ride of joy and fun but also tragedy, and at the end of the day, hope. Mm. That it is not hopeless that people overcome these things. I like that. Um, My favorite was Francesco's motto. Could you tell us what it is and where that came from? So Francesco's motto is, 
Be curious first, judgmental a distant second. And in terms of Francesco and how he came up with that motto, it was really uh, about his relationship to art, about being curious about the choices that the artist made, but it was also about meeting other people and being curious about their interior lives and you know what shaped them to become the person that you're meeting today. Yes, I love that. I love that. And I always like to ask for you, what are the essential things that you desire? I think the biggest thing I desire right now is effective action across the board on climate change. Mm. So as I mentioned, I'm in Minneapolis and we just had a purple health advisory, purple being as high as the color range goes in terms of the quality of breathable air. So we have Canadian wildfires coming, the smoke is coming down and, you know, the air is unhealthy for all groups, not just children or older adults or people with asthma. It's unhealthy for all groups and parents had to bring their kids inside, you know, they couldn't play outside. It's frightening to me. And um, so what I desire most is for it to be taken seriously for collective action that is effective to be taken. And my biggest desire is to leave the planet healthier than it is now and to, you know, hand it over to the next generation in a way that can be sustainable. So that's my biggest desire right now, hands down. I think it's so interesting that you came of age during a uh, during the AIDS pandemic, and that 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 desire for change and activism was part of your youth, your your entrance into adulthood, and that that you have carried that through. That has become part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you would choose activism today as an essential thing just speaks to how that has it's so ingrained in who you were you know what I mean exactly it's um I tell the younger generation today you know climate change is your AIDS and you need to act accordingly because um you know in AIDS during the 1980s the diagnosis you were typically dead under two years for over 95% of the people who were infected at that time. And climate change looks very different, of course, from a transmittable disease. But at the same time, um, we don't know for a fact what is going to be happen down the road in terms of air quality or water quality mm-hmm. and uh, rising temperatures in terms of the food supply. But we need to be taking these things deadly seriously right now. Yeah, it's a fantastic call to action. Thank you. I like that. Yes, and it's a great it's a great place to end. I think that's just a so appropriate for an author who has brought uh, forward a conversation, a story that should be told uh, from the past to leave us with something that we should be thinking about for our futures. You can find After Francesco and Brian's website linked in the show notes. You can also find a picture of him 
with friends from the Minnesota AIDS Project at a march on Washington in 1987. I'll put it on the Desideratum podcast website. Thanks to Vida at Kensington Publishing for connecting me with Brian. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And thank you again. Um, thank you for writing the story. Thank you for bringing it to light. And I'm really happy by your interest in it. Good. So those are all really nice things out releasing a book into the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Tracy. Bye. Bye.